will be devoted to the Lord's Supper. I like once a year just taking some time together as a church family to remember what the Lord's Supper is and why it's so important. (coughs) We've talked before about the meal and the uh, baptism in terms of marriage. We've talked about marriage and the marriage ceremony, kind of showing up in baptism, and that baptism is where, just like a marriage, somebody professes their love for Christ. It's their public profession, their declaration of their commitment to Him. And if baptism is similar to a marriage ceremony, the Lord's Supper is similar to our renewal of our vows. The Lord's Supper is where we renew our commitment and following of Jesus. But another angle through which you can understand the Lord's Supper is the difference between preventative care and acute care. Acute care, of course, is when you're very, very sick or you're in pain and you have to go to the emergency room and there's a problem that's life-threatening or you have to go to the dentist because your tooth is hurting so bad that you can't endure it or maybe acute care with your car is when it blows up and you have to have somebody come and tow it. But there's a different kind of care in life and with our vehicles where we're trying to prevent those types of things. Preventative care with your cars when you regularly go in and get an oil change or get a tune-up. Preventative care with your teeth is when you're regularly going to a dentist to make sure that you're taking care of those things. And with your physical body, it's when you're regularly seeing your doctor for a physical and getting blood work done and getting checked out. Well, in the same way that those preventative measures are meant to help you avoid an acute problem with your car, your teeth, or your body. God provides spiritual preventative care for you and for me. God's spiritual preventative care is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, in fact, the big idea that I want you to have this morning is that the Lord's Supper is the preventative care God gives us that calls us to recommit to Christ. The Lord's Supper is this kind of spiritual preventative care that keeps us from spiritually finding ourselves in an acute position. See, because maybe some of us have been in an acute spot with our marriages where it feels like our relationship with our spouse is strained or we found ourselves in an acute situation spiritually with our children and our relationships with them. Maybe it's your finances, your time or whatever it might be. We've all found ourselves in positions where we feel like we've just kind of strayed farther and we really don't know how we've gotten where we are. The Lord's Supper, what it does is it provides an opportunity to remember, to recommit to what God has called us to do and to be. And so this morning, what I want to do as we look at this text is I want to show you three types of recommitment God is calling us to as a people. From 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34, I'm going to show you three types of recommitment God is calling us to make. Number one, I want you to see from this passage that God is calling us to recommit to Christ's unity. Number one, I want to show you that God is calling us to recommit to Christ's unity. Look in your Bibles at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17 says this. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. (coughs) For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved 
may be recognized among you. The church at Corinth was a church that Paul had helped start, and it was one that had problems almost from the beginning. In fact, Paul says here their problems are so serious. He says, listen, when you guys are coming together, it's actually doing more harm than good for you to come together as a church. Because when you come together, what's showing up are these robust divisions within your body. Apparently there were factions that were beginning to form in the church at Corinth. There were these divisions that were not bringing people together, but actually were beginning to separate them from each other. If you come to my driveway where I live, at some point you could assess that I'm going to have to replace my driveway. Anybody else have cracks in their driveway here in Texas? Huge problem. From the moment we bought the house, we knew this was coming. I'm avoiding it as long as I possibly can. But you know what happens to my driveway the longer I avoid it? The cracks are getting worse. They're not getting better. They're actually getting worse. As every cold front comes through, as every rain kind of pounds out on the pavement, there's the elements that are beginning to wear and tear on that driveway. And you're beginning to see those cracks widen in my driveway. This is the picture that Paul is painting here of the church. There are these cracks. There are these divisions in the body that are growing they're not getting better. They're actually getting worse. People are, are separating further and further apart. And this is showing up in a really poignant way in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20 to see how he describes how these divisions are showing up there. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. One person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Notice this carefully, church. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. See, in the New Testament era, a large portion of the population in the Roman uh, world, in which the New Testament era is written, was comprised of slaves. Over 50% of the Roman Empire was in some way enslaved. And so... There was an incredible stratification of very poor people who were enslaved and very affluent, very rich people. As the gospel began to go out, there were rich and poor who started coming to Christ. And as those divisions in Roman culture were in place, what began to happen is those divisions in the culture between the rich and the poor began to show up in the church. See, they didn't have buildings like this in which to meet. And so what did they do when they gathered together? They gathered together in a home. And normally, they were gathering together in one of the affluent members' homes. And so the divisions that were showing up here, and what Paul is referencing about some people being hungry, some people getting drunk, them humiliating those who had nothing, is apparently what was happening, was the more affluent members of these churches were gathering together, meeting in their homes, eating very sumptuously these huge meals, And then when the slaves would show up from work, getting off much later than they did, they would have basically nothing left for them. They would leave them to sit in the hallway or in the atrium in the lobby while these more affluent members of the church ate together. And Paul says, this is wrong. This is creating a huge problem because what the supper should be doing is unifying God's people. But instead what's happening in this meal is it's actually dividing one another. See, what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do 
is it's supposed to remind us as we come to this table this morning that our common identity is that we are children of the King. The reason we come together this morning is not because of our affinities or because we're aligned in preferences for certain types of worship or even because we happen to have the same geographical location. What unifies us is our identity in Christ. You see, what you have in Jesus is not an achieved identity. What you've been given is a received identity. See, the reason you matter is not because what you have achieved in life, the size of your paycheck, how big your house is, how new your car might be. Those are not why you matter The reason you matter is because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are the object of the triune God's love. The supper is where we come together to shed all these other forms of criteria that we might use to evaluate each other and remember who we are in Christ. The challenge, of course, is not letting competing criterion evaluate how we look at each other. Maybe for some of us, what is tempting is to evaluate people by their wealth that shows up in the type of clothes they wear. Maybe for you it's not wealth, maybe it's status and success that shows up in your position. In Mansfield, what I've noticed is there's a lot of people that are not concerned just with their status, but with their child's status. Maybe the reason you think you matter is because the the team your kid plays on, or the grades that they make, or what they've accomplished in So many parents are living their lives through their children and they find a sense of value and worth from what they're doing. Maybe it's age. We have an obsession in our culture with youth, with young people. Is there a, a sense in which you evaluate and look at people at their value based on how young or how old they might be? Whatever it is, what the Lord's Supper reminds us of, we have to get rid of the other criterion we might use to look at each other and evaluate each other and remember that we are to look at each other and see each other as God sees us. In 2002, Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, decided to make a radical shift in how he was evaluating players and building a major league baseball team. He moved the Oakland A's from evaluating players kind of in a traditional model, which was based on how they looked and the kind of build that they had and the kind of performance that they kind of could behold with their eyes. He moved from that model to a purely statistical model where every player was evaluated on things like their on-base percentage or their RBIs or different statistical kind of formulas they used to evaluate a player's strength. In 2011, there was a movie made about Billy Bean and the the Oakland A's called Moneyball. Some of you may have seen this. Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean. And one of the interesting things that movie chronicles is how hard it is for him to get his organization to buy into this new way of evaluating players. He has to start with the scouts, convincing them that they've got to look at players differently. They've got to look at them purely at a statistical level. He moves on to his coaches and his other managers and people in the front office trying to convince them. But after everyone kind of gets on the same page, it really becomes this beautiful thing because they begin to look at players and the team in the same way. And in fact, the 2002 Oakland A's went on to have one of the longest winning streaks in baseball, winning 20 games in a row, something almost unheard of in baseball. What I want you to know is that in a similar way, what the Lord's Supper does 
is it realigns our value system. It realigns how we evaluate each other to remember that we're to look at each other the way God sees us. I'm not looking at you just through the lens of what you have or don't have monetarily. I'm not looking at you based on just your age or how long you've been in this church. I'm looking at you through the lens of the supper as someone who's been redeemed, forgiven, and saved by the grace of God. If this is gonna be a place that's safe for people to come in and not just hear the gospel, but respond to the gospel and be loved. This has to be a place where we evaluate people not in the color of their skin or the size of their bank account, but we evaluate them on someone who God loves. The Lord's Supper levels the playing field and realigns our value system to see each other the way God sees us. So the point of application for us is, are are you committed to that kind of unity? Part of what the Lord's Supper does is preventative care is it calls us to recommit to unity around the gospel. I skipped explaining a verse I want to go back to in verse 19. Look back up at verse 19 again. Notice something Paul notices or notes about divisions in the body. Verse 19, it says, Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are reproved may be recognized among you. See, one of the things Paul says that divisions bring is an opportunity for people to clearly emerge that are trying to close those divisions. You see, one of the things divisions and factions in a church reveal is that there are people who are called to be peacemakers. That's what that word approved means. It means trustworthy. One of the opportunities then we have when we come to the supper supper is to recommit ourselves, not just to showing up, not just to sitting and watching, but to actively engage in bringing people together. You see, the the gap between factions and divisions in a church that brings healing is God working through a person or persons to bring people together, to reconcile them together. The Lord's Supper is a call to recommit to the fact that God has saved us and redeemed us, not just to himself, but that God has also saved us and reconciled us in right relationship with each other. The second thing we see in this passage, though, is not just a recommitment to unity. We also see a recommitment to Christ's victory. This is preventative care that calls us to remember and recommit to Christ's victory. Look at verse 23 there in your Bibles where he talks about this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The theme that kind of undergirds these verses is the idea of remembrance. To recall something to mind in a vivid way. This is not a casual kind of yawning kind of remembering, but kind of calling to mind something that's deeply personal. I think I've told you guys before that my uh, grandfather was a World War II veteran and it was a great joy 
especially in my teenage years, as I became closer to my grandfather to listen to him tell stories about serving in World War II in Germany. Uh, Pop was a medic driver, and he was the one who would help injured soldiers get into the medic vehicle, and then he would drive them to the hospital where they would go for care. And so he saw some pretty horrific things as a World War II veteran, saw some people live and saw some people die. He saw uh, young men, some of them in their very last moments. It's very powerful to listen to him talk about that. One of the things that I observed when I would talk to Pop about World War II is that it would always, he would tell these stories and they would always end with him having kind of some tears in his eyes. It always ended very emotional for him because anytime he told those stories, he was remembering them, he was recounting them in such a way that they were powerful to him because they were personal, they were real to him. What the Supper provides in a similar way, in the same way that my pop was very vivid about the powerful things that happened to him as he remembered, we too are to remember very vivid, powerful things that have happened to us. See, because if you know Christ, something's happened to you. If you know Jesus as your Savior, something incredibly powerful has happened in your life because you have moved from death to life. You've moved from being under the wrath of God to being forgiven. And so when Paul calls us to do this in remembrance of him as he's recounting the very words of Christ, is we're recounting something that's real, that's happened to us. This is why he emphasized in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I pass on to you. This is not a statement of opinion. This is not Paul just sharing his personal experiences with us that he's had with God. These are real truth claims. These are real historical facts. There are three quick ideas that we should remember when we come to the table to remember the victory of Christ. First thing I want you to notice in this passage he calls us to remember is the substitution of Christ. Substitution of Christ. Notice verse 24 again. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The body and the blood of Christ in this particular scenario only makes sense if you understand the significance of the Passover. So you remember in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were there under the cruel oppression of Pharaoh. God raises up Moses and through a series of miracles, God delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt and begins to move them to the promised land. But the most poignant, the most powerful of those miracles was when God unleashed the death angel through the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn sons in every Egyptian home. And while God unleashed this terrible wrath and fury on this country, there was a provision made for the nation of Israel. They were told that if they would sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorpost of their homes, that when the death angel came through the land of Egypt, he would pass over those homes with the blood on the doorposts, and would not take the life of the firstborn. This is significant because Jesus is saying, guys, that lamb, that blood that caused that death angel to pass over is what was pointing to me. 
Jesus is saying, I'm the Lamb of God. I'm the one who's going to die in your place. I'm the one who's going to shield you from the wrath of God that you rightfully deserve because of your sin. This is important because I don't know if you've ever considered how horrible that death angel's work was in Egypt. Can you imagine tomorrow morning waking up in the city of Mansfield to find that every single home had someone die the night before? What would the funeral homes in our community be like if every single family had someone who died? What would the ambulances and hospitals be like if every single home on your street when you woke up tomorrow morning had people wailing and crying in the front yard because someone had died the night before? Hollywood took a stab at some biblical stories a few years ago and they did a Noah story and they did a Moses story. And uh, while there were several elements of those stories that were biblically inaccurate, can I tell you one thing they got right? When they did the movie about Moses, you watch that last plague when the death angel passes through. What they got right was the sound of wailing and crying that arose from the nation of Egypt the morning after. It only makes sense that the next day they said, get out of here. If you Israelites stay here one more day, we're all going to be destroyed. Why did they kick them out like that? It's because they literally thought they were going to be destroyed. And what I want you to know, sweet people, is that that picture of the wrath of God falling down on Egypt is just a window. It's just a small snapshot of God's wrath towards our sin. That wrath and horrible judgment God unleashes on Egypt is what all of us, all of us, deserve. The reason you believe and trust Jesus is not just because you want him to make your life better. It's not just because you want to go to heaven when you die. The reason you trust Christ is because if you don't, nothing, nothing is shielding you from the wrath of God. Without Jesus, you face God not as his friend, but as his enemy. What we remember when we take the supper then, church, is we remember, we recommit to the fact that through the substitutionary work of Christ, he's won our victory. The second thing this passage shows us is also the salvation of Christ. Verse 25 talked about the new covenant in his blood. God promised in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God one day would establish a new covenant with the house of Israel through which he would give us his spirit. Through this new covenant, God would give us a new heart. Would give us a, a desire to follow him. <coughs> the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the way God saves us is not just by giving us an antidote that forgives us of our sins. The way God saves you and me and the way he applies the substitutionary work of Christ to our lives is he gives us himself. He gives us his very presence. Through the presence of the Spirit, God lives within us, and through his work, he applies Christ's forgiveness to our account. The beauty of the Lord's Supper is that we remember that the way Jesus saved us is through this divine exchange. We gave him our sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness. How does he do that? He does that through the work of his Spirit God gives us then just not just a new position. He also gives us a new presence through the Holy Spirit. 
But thirdly and finally, we also remember when we come to the supper, the return of Christ. So there's a substitution of Christ. There's the salvation of Christ through the new covenant he promised, but there's also the return of Christ. Look back at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we're called to do as we take this supper is we're called to remember that while Jesus died, he did not stay dead. He rose again three days later, ascended to the Father, and one day is coming back. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, you know that we read 2 Thessalonians 1 this past week. We read these words. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 says this, This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of destruction from the Lord's presence and for his glorious strength. On that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. There's a day coming when Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he won't come riding a donkey coming to die like he did the first time he entered Jerusalem. The second time Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's on a white horse. He's carrying a sword with an army behind him and he's going to judge the living and the dead and he will destroy evil once and for all. We take this meal recommitting ourselves to that victory, the substitution, salvation, and return of Jesus. When we take this rightly, when we truly remember what Christ has done for us, what this remembering does is it reminds me that while this world may dangle a lot of things in front of me that I think I need, what the supper reminds me of is that Jesus really has all I need. The supper reminds me that though I may be distracted and pulled in a lot of different directions, what I have in Jesus because of his finished work is all I need. And when I remember that, when I truly grasp that Christ is all I need, it changes my heart. It moves me to consider that now I'm not just following Jesus out of duty or obligation. What the supper does is it causes my heart to be moved to follow Jesus because I want to. It causes me to remember that what I've called to is not just duty or obligation, but a loving obedience to my Father. Parents, we all know the difference in our children between willing obedience and unwilling obedience. Um, my three-year-old daughter right now, we're, we're basically finished potty training her. Um, every once in a while, she has some rebellion in her. And right now, we are motivating her primarily through threats. And please, please don't look at me with judgment like that, okay? We've all been here. Uh, three-year-olds, two-year-olds, they require a good threat now and again to get them to obey, right? Because in those years, you're basically dealing with behaviors. You're dealing with trying to get them to do the right thing. And oftentimes, they don't want to do the right thing, so you have to give them extra motivation to do the right thing. And while we understand that kind of discipline with young children as they're developing and growing because they don't understand, it's unhelpful for us to project that kind of discipline and obedience when it comes to God. You are not obeying God just because he's going to get you if you don't. You're not following Jesus because if you don't, God's going to zap you. The reason we follow hard after Christ is because we love him. 
how do I grow in my love for Jesus? How do I grow in this kind of wanting to do the right thing? How do I get my desires to move in the right direction? It's by remembering and treasuring Christ. See, because when I treasure what Jesus has done for me, it affects my heart to the place that I begin to truly worship and follow him. So as we take the supper this morning, we're recommitting ourselves to being affected by the supper, to making it personal to us. One of my great fears for our church is the fear of familiarity. That we would become so familiar with Jesus, so familiar with the gospel, that we lose our wonder for the gospel. I think I've told you guys before that before I pastored here, I pastored in Missouri, and one of the things that would happen the first couple months we lived there, it was, it was an incredibly beautiful town. It was on Lake of the Ozarks, trees and hills, even some mountains in different places. It was incredibly gorgeous. But after about six months of living there, do you know what I started to do as I drove through our town? I quit noticing how beautiful it was. I was talking to somebody on the phone about work, or I was trying to keep the kids in the back seat from killing each other, or I was doing something. I was, I was losing my sense of the beauty of what was around me because it had become so familiar to me. Part of what we have in the supper, brothers and sisters, is an opportunity to shed this kind of familiarity and to remember again that the gospel is personal, it's real. It was your sin and my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Heard the story about a man this past week who was, after 25 years in prison, released because the district attorney proved that he'd been wrongfully convicted. 25 years in prison for something he hadn't done. And I was watching that story and as he was being interviewed, it it hit me that while this man was freed for crimes he didn't commit, part of what we must remember is we have been freed from crimes we did commit. If you want to make the gospel personal, as we take this meal today, remember it was your lust this week that Jesus died for. It was my pride today that Jesus died for. It was that word That last word you had to get in with your spouse this past week because you wanted to get the last word of that argument that Jesus died for. That it was your disobedience of your parents as you rejected them, as you disrespected them, that Jesus died for. These are not theoretical ideas about some bad people in a faraway place in a galaxy far away. These are real things that you and I have done this very week. This is what Jesus died for. Don't let the gospel become impersonal. Don't let Jesus become so familiar to you that you lose the seriousness of your problem and the beauty of God's solution. Thirdly and finally, we also see Christ's correction in this passage, though. Christ's correction. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The kind of driving command in this passage is verse 28 where he says, let a person examine himself. This means that someone's to do a kind of careful reflection about their life. 
in the context here, this is probably talking about reflecting about our unity. Paul previously had talked about the importance of the body being unified. He's probably here, has in mind the importance of taking time as we take this meal to, to ask whether we're really reconciled with one another. The Lord's Supper then is an opportunity to think, is there anyone in this fellowship with which I have an unresolved problem? Is there anyone relationally that I'm harboring bitterness or anger or unforgiveness towards? Sometimes as you take the supper, that's just an opportunity between you and God to say, God, I'm, I want to lay that down again. I'll lay that at your feet. I, I want to turn from that bitterness and anger I have towards that person. But other times it actually requires you getting up and you going and talking to somebody and saying, hey, things just aren't right between us. I want, I want to make that right with you. I want to apologize to you if there's something I've done that, that's hurt you. Or, hey, I need to tell you something you did that, that hurt me. Now you can, you can feel the kind of the room get a little more serious because at some point in our lives, if you're really paying attention to what Paul is saying, we've all had moments like that. And the only question is whether we're going to biblically seek each other out, ask for forgiveness, offer forgiveness, whether we're going to privately hold on to that. This is the focus. This is Paul's call is for us to carefully reflect on how we're relating to each other. But you could also expand this kind of examination to our relationship with God. It's a call to, to give space to the Holy Spirit to convict us, to correct us, to show us our faults. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be given space as we take this meal together, as we open God's word, to put his finger on maybe an idol in my life I've given a foothold to, to, to point out a sin in my life I've kind of become ignorant or blind to, to show me a relationship, maybe my spouse or my kids that I need to go and make right. All of those things are there, but can I tell you what concerns me is the only way this kind of reflection happens is if we are ever quiet and still before the Lord. The reason I'm concerned about that as your pastor is because we live in a world filled with distractions. From the glowing rectangles that we have called phones, to watches, to tablets, to cars, to all manner of things. There's distractions everywhere. They've even got screens you can put in your shower now. Thought your shower was the one place you could think and get by yourself, but no, you can have your screen right there. It's water resistant. Laws, however, are being passed to protect you from distractions. You've seen this? Texting laws, school zone laws, our country is realizing these distractions are actually hurting people. And while we recognize that at a physical level, what I don't think we see sometimes is the way distractions hurt us at a spiritual level. These distractions can become so, they can proliferate in our lives to such a point that we're never really quiet and still before the Lord to say, God, what are you saying to me? If we're just running from one thing to the next and numbing ourselves with one Netflix show after the next, it can be hard to really be alone with yourself. I think that's why it's so easy just to grab your phone and, and to do that, even while you're trying to parent or do menial tasks at home, is because it's so hard sometimes for us just to be alone, to be still. 
But can I tell you that stillness before God is a requirement if we're going to do this kind of examination? I'm reminded of the story in the Old Testament about Samuel. Samuel became a great prophet and leader in Israel, but before that he was a young child living under a mentor named Eli. And this mentor, one night after Samuel went to him a few times, saying, somebody saying my name, said, hey, the next time you hear this voice, I want you to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel goes back and lays down. Sure enough, he hears his name again, and he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And the stillness and the quiet of that night, God tells Samuel what's going to happen in the future. He tells him how he's going to become this great prophet and leader in Israel. And he tells him about how God's going to lead his people to victory. But I wonder how many of us are missing what God has to say to us because we never in the stillness and quiet before the Lord say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. How often in your life are you carving out time just to be still and quiet before the Lord? Can I tell you one of the reasons we don't? It's because silence terrifies a lot of us. You want me to prove it to you? Watch this. Okay, now that was five seconds. Probably felt like five minutes, right? It's like, he needs to say something. It's getting really awkward. It's because we don't like silence. We fill our lives with noise. We fill our lives with distractions. We fill our lives with all manner of things. But are we really stilling our hearts before the Lord to hear what he has to say to us? The reason the supper is so important is because in that kind of preventative care, it gives us an opportunity to remember and to be still before him. He gives two quick reasons why that's so important. The first is, It avoids taking the supper in an unworthy manner. He talked in verse 27 about taking it in an unworthy manner. He talked in verse 29 about uh, eating judgment on yourself. But notice what he says in verse 30. Look back in your Bibles at verse 30. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. You see, there's a type of Christianity that's casual, that's nonchalant about our sin, that doesn't really give any careful reflection to what's happening in our souls, that causes us to take the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus not very seriously. Paul says in the New Testament era, this was becoming such a problem that people were even dying. There were some that were becoming sick because they were taking the supper in a way that was unworthy. See, boredom with Jesus, carelessness about your sin is deadly to your soul Because all of us are going to find something beautiful and attractive. All of us are going to aspire to something. The only question is, is it going to be Jesus or something else? The supper calls us to careful reflection to say, where's my heart at? Is something other than Christ pulling my attention, pulling my heart away? But the second reason he mentions here as to why this kind of careful reflection is so important is because of the discipline of God. Look at verse 31. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when we come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home 
so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. You see, this quiet and stillness before the Lord gives God an opportunity to discipline us. And this is important because Paul's making a distinction between condemnation and the judgment of the world and the discipline in the church. The condemnation he mentions in verse 29 and 30 is the condemnation Jesus takes for us. It's the substitutionary work of Christ we spoke about a moment ago. But we should not miss that while Jesus takes the condemnation and judgment of God, we shouldn't miss that once we come into right relationship with God, God's Spirit still does discipline us. Not to harm us, not to hurt us, but for our good, for holiness. The Spirit of God often will put His finger on things He's calling us to flee, to move from. So here's the point. This careful reflection Paul calls us to, what it does is it gives us the opportunity to experience God's correction, to lead us to one idea, real repentance. See, part of what happens at this meal, church, is we have an opportunity to turn from our sin once again. I hear people say all the time, the church is not a place for perfect people. And that's true. Church is not a place for perfect people. But I think sometimes what we inadvertently do is we fill in the gaps with a very unhealthy view of church. We say, well, the church is not a place for perfect people. And so it must be filled with people that sin all the time and it's really no big deal. And I mess up, but Jesus still loves me and I kind of live my life however I want. That, that attitude's formed from the scripture as well. So no, the church is not a place for perfect people, but it's also not a place for people who have very little care about their sin. What's the middle ground then? The church is not a place for perfect people, but it is a place for repentant people. People who once confronted with their sin, turn from it. You see, what we have to do is we have to get this mindset clear from our heads that repentance and faith are just things that happen when I first become a Christian. When's the last time you repented and trusted Christ? Well, when I was converted. That's wrong. Repentance and faith aren't just how you come to know Jesus. Repentance and faith are how you continue to grow in Christ. See, because what this is describing is this describing a situation where the Holy Spirit continually is showing your sin and calling you back to Jesus. If you're reading through the Bible this this past week, you read in 2 Chronicles a story of a guy named King Asa, who at the beginning of his life was incredibly successful saw God move in powerful ways, but toward the end of his life did not follow the Lord. Major battle that he fought that he had to hire foreign help. As his body began to decay and have problems, he sought out doctors. And while seeking out doctors is not wrong, the problem that the chronicler shows us about Asa was that he sought all this foreign help, he sought all these doctors, he sought all these people, but he did not depend on the Lord. Repentance gives us an opportunity to remember that we are called to rely and depend on Jesus, not just when we first come to know him, but you need Jesus just as much today, this very day, as the day you first met him. The dependence God calls us then to is something that we have an opportunity to remember and celebrate together every single time we take the supper. So this is the call actually we would make to those of you that don't know Christ. 
If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, the call is to die to yourself and depend on Christ, to repent and rely on him, to turn and to trust him. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in him, you are standing before God, not as his friend, but as his enemy. The only thing that can shield you from the righteous wrath of God is Jesus and what he did for you. So if you don't know Christ today, our appeal to you would be to pray, to trust him, to know him. After the service is over, in just a moment, out these doors to my left, there's a connection corner. I and some of our other staff members will be there. We would love to pray with you, talk with you, if you want to learn more about what it means to become a Christian. But we want you to know that if you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to take this meal with us in just a moment. And we're going to ask you not to take this meal, not because we don't love you, it's because we do. We just believe this meal is reserved for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. As we celebrate the supper this morning, for believers in the room, let's remember that we want to recommit ourselves to following Jesus, to knowing him. As we recommit ourselves to things like his unity, let's question how are we serving as peacemakers in this body As we recommit to his victory, let's really ask, are our hearts being affected by what Jesus has done for us? And as we recommit to his correction, let's ask, Jesus, what are you calling me to do today? What area of of my life are you putting your finger on that you're calling me to repent and to turn to you again? Would you pray with me, please?